Hello, everybody. I'm Todd Fink, and you're listening to Live Free or Dialogue, which is a newer segment of the Kind Mind podcast. Today, I'm happy to uh, have a conversation and introduce you to Jose Hernandez. Jose was an electrical engineer for much of his life. And after an accident at work and a subsequent near-death experience in January of 2000, his life path changed dramatically. In 2004, Jose began creating art as a meditative tool. His art has been exhibited in galleries across the U.S. and hangs in private and corporate collections worldwide and in permanent installations such as the Cleveland Clinic Hospitals Collection and other healing centers across the U.S. and Canada. Jose has founded Inner Immersion, a breakthrough mindfulness practice and immersive art. A collaborative of art, design, and medical professionals offer offering calming and centering experiences for patients. Jose is also a member of the Association of Transformational Leaders, and he was featured in the Netflix docuseries Surviving Death, a very popular documentary on Netflix, and the Dr. Oz Show. I've also heard Jose um, on other recordings, including the This Is Actually Happening podcast. And he regularly speaks on his near-death experience and on art as a conduit for healing. So welcome, Jose. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to connect today. Um, I, I was hoping we could start out by having you share a little bit of what your life was like leading up to that near-death experience. Thank you, Todd, uh, for having me. It's a real honor and a real pleasure. So uh, going to your question, uh, Growing up in, in, in the Bronx, I was born in the Bronx. Uh, my father was from the island of Puerto Rico, so was my mom. Uh, my mom was, uh, French and Spaniard though. My father was more of indigenous, uh, uh, descent ancestry. Uh, came to New York. I was the first one born in the city. I have eight siblings that are older than me that were all born on the island. And, uh, so I was the first one here. So it made my growing up a little more difficult than usual simply because he relied on me to learn English and uh, to be like his translator and his teacher. Uh, very difficult when you're five or six years old uh, to, to attempt to do that. But uh, I grew up in an environment where my father drank a lot, uh, worked hard, but he drank a lot. And uh, he was quite abusive. So uh, that was the world I grew up in. The South Bronx at that time was almost like a war zone. So uh, the buildings were gutted. Uh, it was just uh, buildings were being torn down. They were empty. Uh, so it was a, an unusual time to grow up in a city that when we look when we look at New York City on TV, we see like, wow, New York City is so, an amazing looking city. Uh, but you only see like what we call the city, Manhattan, mostly, uh, or Queens and some of the, the nicer areas. But anyway, I grew up there. My father drank, quite abusive, created an environment where I clashed with him quite a bit. And uh, at one point when I was a young teenager, I started to kind of stick up for my mom and uh, he and I were always bumping heads and uh, kind of set up ultimately where I wind up. But uh, during that time, my mother being a devout Catholic, my father being indigenous, it created for an unusual perspective in, in, in culture and religion, and I chose to, to take the path of science. Uh, uh, went on to become an engineer, 
simply because I didn't want to be Catholic or indigenous or follow either faith or, or, or belief. And uh, so you think I, that was I, due to some of the turmoil of your childhood, Jose? Oh, a whole lot. A whole lot. Yeah. You know, uh, there was a lot of anger and toward being indigenous because he felt that was a liability. Hmm. You know, he, he was, he would try to hide it. Uh, his father was, my grandfather on his side was a Caucasian, was European. So he, he was quite fair skinned. So it was easier for him to navigate, but, uh, always had that, uh, crutch or that fear that if people found out it would work against him. I am, uh, came out more like his mom. So I am, uh, darker skinned. And, uh, so, uh, also created a, a not a good situation for him. You know, uh, he would always think that me and my younger brother, because we were brown, were not his. Mm. And uh, that my mom had been maybe somewhere, you know, with, with somebody else. And, and that's how we, we came to be. But anyway, uh, we grew up that way. We grew up in a very conflict-ridden house. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of uh, fight or flight all the time. Uh, a lot of anxiety and stress and uh led me to be like my mother's protector. I was one of the youngest, but uh, I have two older brothers, but uh, that role fell on my shoulders and I, I kind of took to it. And uh, so my father and I had a very difficult relationship. We didn't speak. He also had a very unusual way of thinking men should be. In his mind, the man is like tough, emotionless. They never cry. Uh, basically they're an empty shell. Uh, and I grew up thinking that. I grew up that way. And, uh, I don't remember crying, for example, laughing. And uh, that was the first time I wept since I could remember since I was very small. Uh, and maybe simply because he wasn't there. Because if he was there, I'd be thinking, oh, my father's going to think I'm weak or, uh, you know, but anyway, that's the environment I grew up in and uh, kind of set up really my life. You know, I thought I was living. I was very competitive. I was very kind of like alpha based, uh, which might be very predominant in a city like that in, in the hood. Uh, so part of it is a, a mechanism of protection. Part of it is just the way you grow up. And, uh, so that, that's how I was. And then what led up to the near death experience? Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah. How that happened? Mm -hmm. So I was running electrical lines in a bucket truck one, one day. Uh, and, uh, we were running late and, uh, we wanted to hurry up and finish. It was Wednesday. Day before Thanksgiving, we had this four day break. We wanted to get it done as early as we could. Uh, and uh, we decided to take a shortcut or two. And I wound up in an accident. I broke uh, most of the ribs in my right side and uh, sent to hospital, was given a medication that ultimately I became, I was allergic to. So uh, I had a reaction to it. It shut my lungs down and uh, ultimately it led to stopping my heart. And uh, that was the onset of my near-death experience. Uh, so I took the medication 
And it, it was a gradual process. It wasn't like instant. So I, I remember calling the hospital back up and saying, hey, I'm having difficulty breathing. They said, well, you're all taped up. You can't take a deep breath anyway. So that's, that's normal. So I took that to heart and I continued to take the medication and slowly and, you know, slowly I, I just started to deteriorate. You were in the hospital at this time, though? You were in the no, ICU? No, I was still at home. I was still you were at, at home. home. Okay. And so imagine, this is the day before Thanksgiving. Right. I wind up going to the hospital on January 6th. Now, I, got, I, I went in between. Uh-huh. And uh, so it was really gradual. And ultimately, I couldn't breathe on January 5th. My wife and my son took me to the hospital. I went to the OR. Uh, they decided that uh, they were going to let me keep me. So I sent my wife and my son home. I said, ah, there's no sense you guys hanging out here. Isn't it? I'll be home in a day or two. Anyway. So that was my mindset. You know, we, we never wake up thinking this is our day. You know, this is the day that you're going to check out, especially if you feel relatively strong and, and, and capable still. So I went in with that mindset and, uh, I'll, I'll share with you what that experience was like. I got in yes. the hospital. Yeah. My wife went home. The nurse, uh, they put me on an IV. And my the nurse comes in and says, well, if you need anything, you're going to push this button, right? You're going to call for help. So I said, okay. And in my mind, I'm thinking, ah, I'm not going to call for help anyway. So that's been about 45 minutes. And my breathing was just getting worse and worse and worse. And I was at a point where I could barely take a breath. And, you know, all these thoughts go through your head, how you grew up and everything. So I'm, I, I'm thinking about my father, you know, this is, you're going to be okay, you know, suck it up, you know. And and and, and, and your father had passed at this time, right, Jose? Yeah, he had died uh, five years already. He, okay. he had moved on five years already. And, uh, but anyway, his teaching was still very right. dominant in us, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I finally pushed the button. And it took a minute for the nurse to get there, approximately. And that was probably the longest moment that I will tell you of my life. But it just felt like forever. She got there. She opened the door. She just looked at me, and she just hit the cold blue button. And the next thing I know, they're lifting me up. They're putting a board under me. They're trying to put a tube in there so I could breathe, and they're trying to keep me going. And there's about two or three IVs attached to me. In the meantime, I'll share with you what I felt mm -hmm. emotionally. And the first feeling that I had was one of shame. And I'll describe that simply by saying I was so weak that I couldn't hang on to the sheet that was covering me. And I was so embarrassed that they had stripped me down like that and I was helpless to stop it. Uh, the next thing was sense of if this is real what's going to happen to my family and my kids and a, a fear for them uh not really for me but for them like if this is real what's going to happen to them and then that led to almost like a free fall and what i felt was like dreadful fear and thinking oh my gosh i'm gonna die and if i die now i'm thinking like an like an electrical engineer if i was like put shutting the switch off and turning out my light. And it was just, I'll be black and I'll be nothing. I would mm -hmm. simply cease to exist. And that, that idea was very painful. 
That was a real painful I thought. Uh, so that kind of motiv- motivated me to say to myself, I, I, I need to hold somebody's hand. I'm so scared. And there were plenty of people that I could have reached out. And I couldn't speak because I couldn't breathe. But uh, that led to another series of thoughts. And then that was my father. And I'm thinking of my father in his grave. And I'm saying, he'll turn in his grave if I show fear. So what I did was I sucked it up. I actually tensed. I'll never forget that. My body actually tensed. And I said, I'm not going to show these people. I'm afraid. I can't do that. And I didn't. And I didn't reach out for anybody's hand. And the next thing was almost like, God, I don't believe in you. But just in case, if you are real, I'm reaching out to you. And uh, what I like, if you intervene, if you intervene in this process, I promise I'll be a better man. I'll change. I'll, I'll be different. And I, in my own head, I guess I was negotiating right. with a God that I really didn't believe in, but just in case. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my heart was beating so fast from all the meds and everything that was going on, galloping in my chest. And I could feel it and hear it become erratic. So it, it wasn't a, a fast rhythm anymore. It was a very chaotic. And that made it more difficult to breathe. At that point, I could hear the IV drops. Almost sound like water hitting a tin roof. If you've ever had that experience, how loud Mm. that is. Raindrops, right? And then I, I, I looked at the wall and it was quite distant, but I could see the grain in the wallpaper. And in my head, I'm like, Somewhat fascinated and captivated by that, but at the same time, the fear is, is, is driving and overwhelming everything. And I got to a point where my heart became so irregular that I knew I wasn't going to make it. So I started to tell myself, you know, uh, there's no shame in dying. I'm not quitting. I'm not giving up. We grew up in an environment where we were never allowed to quit or give up, you know. And so if I gave into this, it would be considered quitting. So I couldn't do that. And what I, what in my own head, I started to tell myself, I'm not quitting. I'm not giving up. There's just nothing I could do to stop this. And then. But was there a moment, Jose, where you felt like, okay, I reached out to God and nothing happened? There was right before that. And I actually punished myself for for thinking that and saying hey you knew there was no god anyway what, what were you thinking but i mm-hmm. i i just said freak you you know i i knew you weren't real anyway and and i was going back to where i was when i was uh in that thinking uh it's okay to embrace this and accept mm-hmm. it you know i finally told myself it was okay to die at that point my heart stopped. It's a very, I don't know how to describe it, but when you hear your heart stop and you hear the monitor, just go be. There was an awareness that I was dead and I was in that last minute of consciousness. 
Yeah. And the fear just really kind of took hold. And then I just looked to the doorway and, uh, and I could see like a shadow standing there. And, uh, in that moment, I finally told myself, it's okay to die. Okay. And at that moment, that shadow just moved. Now, remember, I don't believe in anything. Right. So looking at that, it's very strange to me and, and maybe not even real. But I see it moving and it moves in and it moves around everybody. So it seems like it's an entity of some kind. Yes, it has the form of a being, a person. Uh, but no features, just like a, a darker, like a shadow. And it just, I could see it reach out to me and touch me. When it touched me, I felt a tremendous sense of peace and calm just take hold of me. And it just went right through me. And this, this, this beautiful sense of love and, uh, that everything was going to be okay. And, uh, I felt this breeze, a warm breeze. And I got long hair. So I'm thinking, oh, my hair is just blown away in this breeze. And I felt like I was, it was lifting me. And the next thing I know, I'm standing in the corner of the room and I'm looking at the crash team trying to keep me alive. And, uh, I, uh, looked at my body and I knew that was me. And I said to myself, that's me and I'm dead. But if that's me, then who am I? Because in that body, I knew everything that I needed to do what I was doing was dead. My brain, my eyes going through my head in that moment. And, uh, finally I, uh, Embraced it. And I heard a voice say to me, imagine your body is a car. Like a car. And this car has five million miles on it and there's nothing we could do to fix it anymore. So we gotta let it go. Mm -hmm. So in essence, it felt like a feminine energy. Like you gotta let go of this. And you gotta say goodbye to your body. And I'm uh, thinking in my own head, wait a minute, I just, said goodbye to my life. Now I got to go and say goodbye to my body. And uh, as I looked at my body, something very profound happened. It was the first time that I saw myself as beautiful and perfect. And I realized what my body has sacrificed and done for me, how it sacrificed itself for me and you know, and, and I, I wondered why was I worried about this? Why was I caring about my, all the things I thought so many things would flow with me wrong. And now I felt the sense of how perfect I had been and how willing that body was to spend itself living my life and then die. So it was a really beautiful moment where I said to myself, you know, I, I loved who I had been. I had never experienced that in my real life. There was always something wrong with me. You know, I was never good enough. Uh, I think a lot of us go through that in life. You know, my, my weight, mm-hmm. my, the way I look, there was always something wrong. And, and you always feel less. And, uh, it was the first time that I didn't feel that way that I felt like, you know, 
I honored that body for allowing me to experience everything I did. So what happened was I got a, a download of memories. So I remember holding my little brother's hand, taking a deep breath, being able to see all the things that I experienced with this body, but simple things, a simple kiss, a hello, yeah. uh, you know, the sunlight, a sunrise. And, and things that I never really thought about. So one that struck really deeply was seeing my children when they were little and how they looked at me and there was so much trust and love in their eyes. Like you could see it. It was almost like a physical thing and how I had spent my whole life in this competitive mode trying to gain wealth and things and, and have stuff and how I missed all this. So essentially, I had missed mostly my entire life because I was caught up in what I had to do tomorrow and then the week after that. And, oh, my God, this happened. And how do I fix it? And uh, I didn't take the time to see all the beauty in place that was all around. And even a tree. And uh, I realized the gift that I had been given. Crazy that. It took my death for me to realize that. And uh, everything that we have, that we take for granted, and more in particular, that deep breath. As I have that memory of the deep breath, I could contrast now with those few minutes, those last minutes that I couldn't breathe. And how taking that breath, how easy and simple it had always been. And how it, it was like the catalyst for my life. And so I went through that experience of, of reliving a lot. I call them benign moments. But I would say that 98%, 99% of our day is that. Breathing. We're doing all these things we don't even think about. Mm -hmm. We're seeing. We're touching. We have this amazing uh, intense life and so much good in it. And all I could think about is those few bad moments and how do I overcome this? And oh yeah, I got an opportunity to make more money or do that or do this. You know, maybe I need a bigger car. And, uh, suddenly none of that mattered. And yeah. It sounds out. like none of that mattered, Jose, like in that intense experience, that remarkable experience, it became clear that you weren't your body. For the first time. So you could love the vehicle that you had been riding in. And then it sounds like material things did not matter. Like you didn't have, re you didn't, you weren't consumed by thoughts of your business or your work or possessions. It was, seems like what really matters at the end is love and how much we, or how many moments we missed or we could have been loving. Like, like maybe that's something that we take with us, huh, Jose? No, for real. That is, you said that really well because what I, what I remembered mm. was what I had missed. And there were moments that I observed it and I saw it, but not to the capacity that that's always around me and it was always there. And what I realized was that everything that I gained, a car, a house, and the way we speak, my wife, like we own everything. Like it belongs to us, my kid, not even my physical body. 
it's almost like it's a, a loan from mm. creation or God, wh- how, whatever we believe in. It, it just puts this out there for us and we could use it. But at one moment, we're going to have to give that up and let it go. And, and, and it's for someone else to use. You don't think about this much. You know, what you just described, Jose, is what has inspired me to meditate, to pursue, to seek spiritual knowledge, because I've had this keen sense my whole life that you have to give it up. And it could be at any moment, young or old, it doesn't matter, you know. And and I and fortunately, I guess, I've thought I've thought about that. I mean, I even had anxiety over that, you know. And working really hard to have an experience like you and not having that experience for so long and then hearing you just like having it, it actually makes me happy. It makes me inspired because what I've been seeking, I think, is validated that consciousness, that existence is beyond this physical form that we inhabit. And you having an an experience with that, contact with that almost validates what I've been seeking. So there's like, you know, some people might say like, you've been working so hard and then Jose can just boom, you know, have this transcendental experience. But I think it's so beautiful and profound and and reassuring. There's a comfort, like I feel a comfort in your story about whenever my transition comes. And I think that's what spiritual practice would be all about. That moment when, like you said, you got to get out of the car. The car has served its time and it can no longer serve you. You have to get out. And it, if we're not ready for that, I mean, you had a moment of real dread, right, Jose? Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, and, and I would imagine now, whenever you cross over again, it'll be pretty peaceful. Um, so how how much time passed while you were having those experiences? Like how much time was your body flatlined in the hospital? Yeah, so I was clinically dead for five minutes. Five minutes? And uh, oh god, uh, my experience was like a day and a half. Yeah, I was just going to say so, it sounds like you had all kinds of experiences that couldn't be narrated in five minutes. Right. So. The voice next to me says, okay, now we got to go. Mm-hmm. And I start walking with her in my mind. Uh, to me, creation or God or creator has a feminine aspect and a masculine aspect. And So it felt divine to it you. It felt divine. And she led me to a space. And what I saw was a like a big black hole. Now, from a science perspective, I could see that really easy. So black hole is going to take me from here to another side. So I kind of walked into it and I fell in and I came out the other side, but it was painful. It was painful. So I felt like something was ripping off of me. And then I landed somewhere and she says, no, keep going. And the same thing happened again. Another black hole. I walked in, boom, very painful. I emerged. If you could visualize a ball and you're right in the center of it. And you have all this color all around you, 360 degrees. I emerged there, right in the center. And I could see this color all around me. And it's, it's, it's as alive as I am. And it's talking to me. And I feel this sense of a tugging. So I don't know if the color is moving towards me or it's joining towards it. But 
I get to a point where I get enmeshed in it and I become the color. When I become the color, it's almost like I get this download and it's teaching me, okay, when you're going to paint like this, this is how you're going to do it. You're going to start with a black canvas and this is why. And it gave me all the explanations and, and that happened very quickly. And I slowly emerged on the other side of the color. And from my experience, the dying process to me was about letting go and acceptance. And I, I, I find those two are one. You know, for me to let go, I have to accept. For me to accept, then I can let go. And, and so I, I kind of connect them like that in my own head. And all I can see is just a beautiful forest and some mountains in the background. And I can see the contrast of clouds, the shadow of the clouds on them. And even to this day, I find that unusual because I grew up in New York City. And then I lived in South Florida. No mountains, none of that, right? Uh, so it was very co contrasty why I would wind up there. And a, herds of animals just roaming free. It was beautiful. What was unique about it was everything that I approached, I became. So if I got near a tree, I became that tree. When I was in the air, I, I was the air. If I was near a rock, I became the rock. If it was a bird, I was the bird. Uh, in my mind, when I was in that ball of color, I was light. And it made me understand the concept of being one. So that was quite intriguing, but I was also moving. And as I was moving, I realized that I was floating. And I said to myself, oh my God, I'm floating, I'm flying. And the voice said to me, that's normal here. And then I asked a question about my children. And the question was, what's going to happen to my kids? And the voice said to me, don't worry, you can see them from here. That was it. I was in literally heaven in my own consciousness. You know, the uh, it, it's hard to explain that feeling of love and peace and calm that you feel there. But that connectivity. So I wasn't speaking. I could hear everything around me and everything communicated with me. So everything was alive. Mother Earth, rocks, everything that I looked at had life. It wasn't like we perceive it here to be lifeless and just uh, uh, it has mass only. And uh, I continued to move on. And I was told that that pain that I felt as I was falling through mm -hmm. this, those faces was simply me being stripped away all the painful moments, all the the dark moments, the ugliness in my life was just being torn off. It, it couldn't move into the space with me. The only thing that could move in here were good memories and love. So anything that was painful to me or hurtful or anything that I felt like envy or whatever, that had to be taken away from me. It couldn't move into the space with me. I understood that clearly. And it was so easy to understand that. I didn't need an explanation. I didn't need anything like, hey, this is why that was clear. So I kept moving and I, I, I kept lifting up. I saw these mountains. I could see the snow. I got up to the top. I could see the sun to my right, a beautiful beach to my left. And the sun, when I looked at it, it was almost like I was looking through a telescope and I could see solar flares and all that. I feel that warmth coming. 
in my mind at that point, I said, oh, this is where I could fly. That warm air is giving me lift. But I looked to the left again, and I saw a man on the beach. And there were six children in a line, in knee-deep in the water, and one child on his left. And I said, let me, let, I wanted to go find out what that was. So I went down. When I get about 10 or 15 feet away, this man turns around. And this was my father. And I looked at my dad and I realized instantly that this was my chance to tell my father what I never told him in life. Now, when my father died, I had to, I had to sign off to disconnect him from life support. Uh, my older brothers and sisters kind of let that fall on my shoulders and I couldn't let my mother do it. So I, I went... Uh, to, to sign and, and I felt really guilty. So I had a lot of guilt. I had a lot of issues of things that were never said, uh, lost opportunities between us. And uh, I never in life told my father I loved him or that I cared and we never hugged. Hugging wasn't allowed. That's not what men do in his mind. And I so many times wanted to do that. And even when I took him off life support and I looked at him, I couldn't say anything. But anyway, this was my chance. And uh, I could hear him. He could hear me. We weren't speaking. But uh, we forgave each other. And not only did we forgive each other, I felt this tremendous sense of allowing myself to forgive myself. And when I forgave myself, I just felt so free. Now I'm already in this amazing space in this beautiful place, right? But suddenly, the awareness that I could shake this off. And it just empowered me so much. And I embraced my father. When I embraced my father, I had that same experience I had with the trees and everything else. I became him. And I lived his life in those seconds. And I could understand why he was the way he was, what his life of me, and that he was proud of me for going to university and all that. But he never said it in life, but I knew it was there. And uh, anyway, we, we break off the, that, that hug, and I look at him, and he looked at me, and he said, Jose, you got to go back. Look at my father, I said, I don't want to go back, man. I, I want to stay here. I really like it here. <laughs> and... Uh, I said, no, you don't understand. You have to go back. I felt like a tug here from my back and pulled me. And all of a sudden, I was back in my body. I opened my eyes. And I remember seeing the the uh, doctor that was doing CPR. She kind of looked back. I instantly was back with my father at that point. And he's still telling me, no, Jose, you got to go back. But to this day, I still find that very striking because... When I was dying, I didn't want to die. Now I didn't want to come back. And to this day, I still think about that. It's, it's very thought provoking for me. And anyway, he looked at me and he finally said, you know what? We're going to do a deal. And I looked at him and I said, okay, what's the deal? He said, look, if you go back, I promise when your time comes, I will come get you. And, uh, man, that sounded like, such a great opportunity, such a great deal. I said, okay. And I said, okay. 
and the next thing I know, I'm back in body. And I'm feeling difficulty of breathing. I'm intubated. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering why did I make that choice? I feel physical pain again. There was a lot of stress and anxiety. And uh, uh, I felt like I had been kicked out of heaven. And my thought was, you know, and I don't know if I can say this, but I, I thought, yeah. what, what, you know, how shitty of a person was I? That I got kicked out of heaven. And, uh, then I started thinking, what if this isn't real? Maybe this isn't real. And, uh, then my science mind kind of took back hold and I started thinking my mind's broken. That couldn't have been real. You couldn't have met your father. You didn't die. I didn't know. Do you think maybe like it could have been some sort of end of life brain chemistry that the release of DMT and created a whole hallucinogenic experience? But what's amazing about that, Jose, is how much of an experience you had in five minutes. Like you said, it was more than a day's worth of experience. Time seems to kind of like completely fold and become non-existent. Mm-hmm. You know, how we, we look at time. Right. But uh, all I know is that when I got better, now I will share this. Every time they hit a cold blue because the prognosis, I was told I'm not going to leave this place alive. Take care of your affairs. Many times. So every time they hit a cold blue, I would be like, oh, gosh, that's going to be me again soon. Where would I go? What, what was my go-to? It was that bowl of color. And I escaped into there. And I felt with time I was getting better. In my mind, I feel that I was beginning to heal because of that, because of my exposure to those, to that environment. Uh, now remember, I'm not that type of guy. So I'm really struggling with how could I be embracing that? Doesn't make any sense. But uh, I truly believe that now. And uh, when I started to get better, finally, when they take me off the, I, I, I was intubated when they take me off. I, I was able to speak. And I, could you imagine not speaking for all those months, a month and a half or whatever, right? And I, I remember telling my cardiologist, I said, I think I went somewhere. That was it. And he went into what you just said. No, it was DMT. Your brain is still alive for two minutes after your heart stops. And you had all these drugs we were giving you. So literally, that was all hallucination. But that didn't resonate. I couldn't stop thinking about that experience. I mean, even to this day, now this is 20 years ago. I think about that 20, 30, 40 times a day. And uh, it really has shaped my life completely. So I was finally able to leave hospital. I went to mental health professionals for about almost six years uh, because I thought my mind was broken and that that experience wasn't real. And uh, it took six months before I could physically go to see them. And even then I had to take oxygen with me. And then I didn't know how to say what happened. I didn't feel comfortable to almost three years into seeing them. And I had seen two different practitioners. This was the third. She actually sat right next to me. And this is maybe in of itself a little crazy, but she held my hand 
and she held my hand, and I was dying again. I was on that bed, thinking, I wish somebody could hold my hand. I'm so scared. And that gave me the power and the courage to tell her, this is why I'm here. Am I crazy or not? And uh, she was very open-minded and very compassionate person. And uh, kind of really taught me many things. Now, she couldn't stay with me for a while, so I went to somebody else. And the same thing, she was very open. And the idea was, Jose, keep one foot here and one foot over there. If, if, if you're too much over there, we're going to medicate you. If you're not there at all, you're going to lose this. So where do you want to be? So they taught me how to balance and, and how to kind of keep that science part of me still intact while I preserved. And, and I know you spoke to this before, that survivability of consciousness. I did not die. My body did. But a part of me continued. And it continued in a very coherent way. Now, I don't know if I was, if I'd be dead for 20 minutes or half an hour. You know, at one point you go down that rabbit hole, you can't walk back. But if I was dead 10 minutes and I came back, if the experience would have been deeper or different or whatever. But I cannot answer to that. I could only say what happened to me. And, uh, in my mind, we are eternal. It made me very spiritual. So, it, it disrupted my life completely in the sense that my wife at the time one day simply said to me, you know what? You're not the guy that I married. I don't know who you are. And my kids, the same. Like, where's the old Joe? And I'm like, God, I thought I was better. I said, well, now I'm spiritual. Now I'm more open to stuff, right? I'm right. a better guy. But, but anyway, but eventually we they got had one. They had an idea of what your identity was. Yeah. Right. Well, they grew up. They grew up that way, right? Right. And like, no God. Science is it. Mm. So I think it might have been a difficult time for them. So while I was transitioning, they were transitioning, and uh, sometimes I still feel like they missed the old one, who they knew. <laughs> you know, and uh, so it doesn't come without difficulty, and it's, I, I don't recommend this experience for anybody. You know, your path is better. You know, but I will share this. I feel perfectly content. I no longer need to search for anything. I feel complete. I don't know how to explain that. Mm. I just feel at peace with everything. You know, and uh, I know a lot of people are seeking and trying to find and, and things like that. And, and I honor that and respect it. And, uh, uh, but I no longer feel that need. And I have to equate that with that experience and, and what that was and, and that understanding that you have of being one and how everything is interrelated and interconnected and how I'm not separate from my, 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 uh, my, uh, uh, relatives or my, my ancestors or, or, or even you, you know, when I, when I paint and that's what happened when I came out of hospital, I had this compulsion to paint 
And that's why we're seeing part of the reason I'm seeing these, these mental health professionals like, what's wrong with me? I don't know how to paint. I never painted before. And then I just followed that blueprint. And uh, I started painting the way they told me with an understanding of why that's essential. So I start with a black canvas. Why? Because it, it told me that in the emptiness and what we think is nothing is where all the ingredients for everything that we know exist in our and they ultimately take shape. So the example was look at the night sky. Where you see all that black is filled with stars and the deeper we see, the further we, you know, the more there is. And so I understood that from a very organic place, right? From, right from there. And then it said paint in layers. So I got to paint and then paint over it and paint over it and paint over it. And the reason I do that is I'm a different person than when I'm 10, than when I'm 15, than when I'm 20. I, I experience many different lives in one lifetime because I'm a different person so many different times. And the walls that we build are represented by these layers. So it kind of, it's interesting because I didn't paint to paint. I painted to create meditations, a word that I would never have used before my experience. But I felt if I could create Meditation just might help people. So I had this need to serve. Do you think that's part of why you came back? There's more purpose for you. Yeah, I, I, I felt for sure now. Not, not right away, but it took uh-huh. this, all these years to do it. And I'll tell you what was the catalyst. I was working with someone in Toronto, a mental health professional, and we were doing the practice of the inner immersion practice, and she she said to me one day, Jose, you can't take this back with you. You have to leave it here. Mm-hmm. And it it almost was like, you know, like, wow moment. Maybe this is why you came back. And so, but I'm not sure why I came back. You know, I realized that everything we do in life, we leave here. There's nothing we really take back with us. So uh, if you know something and you don't share it, you take it back. But right. if we share it, then we leave it here. And, and the idea is, you know, I look at us all as individual creators, right? Mm-hmm. We like mini gods. And we create all these things. We created even this, this internet. And, and what we're doing now was created by, by people. And uh, so... You know, everything we do, chairs, housing, we create everything, right? And uh, except Mother Earth, that was placed there for us and the resources that she houses. But uh, I look at us as many creators and we leave all that here. So if I have a recipe, for example, make it simple for this great cake and I share with my family, when I move on, I left that here with them. So I look at it as God-given, creator-given, but now I left it here for them. And that's what creator intends. And so I, I just look at it from very simple, from a very simple lens now. There's no complexity. I don't need quantum physics. I don't need anything complex to, to, to explain this to me. It's just simple, common sense stuff. You know, it, it, and I look at you serving. Somebody's going to come there and buy that, and you did that, you know. And and we 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 look down at so many things. We have this judgmental mindset, 
And I'm beginning to learn that everything we do is really to serve others. And sometimes we we take so much of it and we try to serve ourselves with it. And that's, I think, where we get into uh, difficulty in life when we begin to think, let me just serve only me. And everything is about you, you, you. And then all of a sudden, you break this connection. And kind of like the connection I had with my father, I didn't have to speak. I could just hear. Do you have any experiences on earth, in this world, back in your body, that seems to reflect what you experienced in your NDE? You know, that, that kind of bridges the gap between that struggle of, could that have been a hallucination? I mean, is there anything, do you, do you see any signs of the, world behind this world or something to that effect, Jose? That's a beautiful question. And the answer is yes. I, part of the new me wanted to learn more about my culture, in particular from my father. Mm. So I moved up to Canada from South Florida. Uh, my wife grew up here, so her mom's been here. And we came, I, my mom had just passed, her dad had passed, so we moved up here to spend a few months with her mom. And then the intent was to move to, to England. Uh, so she, she's, she's English and, uh, she's British. And so she has most of her family there. Uh, but we came here and we liked it. We decided to stay. And here I have access to a lot of, uh, there's a huge First Nation community here. And I was able to, tap in and, and, and they invited me to some of their functions. Now I, I, I am blessed to be able to share and, and, and being in, asked to or invited into many of the ceremonies, which are so special. But, uh, I, I got invited to do a sweat and I started to do it regularly and I had this profound experience. Now imagine a sweat. You're in there. And it's pitch black. And my hand is here. I can't see it. I know there are 20 guys in there with me. And I have this experience of color defines me, number one. Color is very important to me. And I say, without light, nobody would see me. I would be like this. What I realized that we were just 20 souls all together, almost. But the experience was we're waiting to get in the sweat. And I'm sitting there and I got stung by a bee. Now, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere, right? The sweat is it's deep in the reservation. Uh, there has to be a creek. We need to have water. We need to have all these things. So I got stung by a bee on my thigh and I'm allergic. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, this is it. I'm gonna check out right here because I started to swell up really quickly. And I said to an elder, I said, listen, I got to go because I got stung by a bee and I'm allergic and I don't have an EpiPen. And he looked at me, he said, take a deep breath and relax. And I looked at him and I said, no, you don't understand. My, my, my throat is going to close up and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die here. And he looked at me. He was like, no, no. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, beautiful sky. The trees are here. And I said to myself, what a beautiful place to die. And very different from when I was dying the other time, right? When I was fearful of dying. And this one, I was very calm and embracing of it. He looked at me, he took a few steps from me, and he grabbed four leaves from a bush. 
and he gave it to me. He said, chew that and it's going to get sticky. When it gets sticky, put it on the body. I'm looking at him like almost like, no, you don't need to get it. And then I'm looking at this thing and it has like spider web on it. And I'm saying, hey, I'm not going to chew that and have another allergic reaction, right? <laughs> but I, I looked at him and I, I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to survive this. I can't drive myself to the hospital. It's too late. So chew it. It's okay. Right. What do you have to lose at this point? Exactly. So I, I put it in my mouth. I chewed it. Exactly like you said, it got sticky. I took it out, put it on a bite. A minute later, that swelling was gone. And he looked at me and he said, what did you learn? And I said, well, I think you're going to have to help me with this one. And he said, you realize that bee made a path. Give up its life right here to sting you. And that bush knew you were going to be here. I knew you were going to be here. You knew you had to be here. And that bush said, I have to grow here so that the elder's name could grab those for leaves, give it to me. You know, and his name was Bruce. And he said, Do you understand what's happening? Everything knew you were going to be at this moment. Nothing mm -hmm. is ever not conscious of that. And it knew it had to be there for me to grab it and, and figure it just, you understand how everything is one. And man, that was it. I understand how everything is one in this world. Not only when we die. I am integrated into everything. And I began to understand. So when I walk with an elder, and he walks over a line of ants. And in my mind, he didn't even look down to see where they were. So he wouldn't step on them. And he explains to me simple things like, Jose, do you realize so many things are going on? We have an expression. It's called all my relations, right? Mm -hmm. It means everything that's interrelated into my life or interconnected. So if I walk in a bus or a train, for example, in New York City, there's 5,000 people that I never see them again, but they're connected with me permanently because of that moment, that few seconds that we were together there. And it goes beyond that. He says, you know, think of what's happening on the ground, what's happening in the sea, what's happening in everywhere all around you, the sky. All those things have to be in place for everything to be perfect. So when I got stung by that bee, all those other bees had to be there. The birds that were flying, the worms that were on the ground. He explained it to me in such a way that I was like, my gosh, this is so simple. Thank you and for yet, sharing that. It's so, yeah, such a beautiful. And yet, what were you going to say, Jose? It, 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 it's so simple. Mm. And yet we make it so complex. Like it's so difficult to comprehend how everything is connected. Well, that's uh, that what I was going to say. has to be there. Yeah. That our mind is always rejecting that connection in the present moment. We're, we're telling ourselves, I need something else to be happy. I got to get away from this and I have to have more of this. And we live our whole lives that way. Also, the wisdom that was coming from that teacher, it, it's, it sounds like that's part, that's part of, a, of a cultural wisdom. And so many of us are disconnected from heritage and from the collective wisdom. Right. And now I feel like and 
I'd like to see what you think, but it seems like there's a lot of forces that push us further into separation. Even technology, it has this good side. It allows me and you to talk like this on different in different parts of the world or different parts of the continent. But then it really reinforces this idea that it's not all my relations. And even just when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, Jose, the, the communication, let's say, is the telephone. But there's only one telephone for my family. I don't have my own telephone. My brother has his own telephone. That technology existed, right? Like it wasn't impossible to have four landlines in my family or four lines. Mm-hmm. At one point, my father had a separate line for a business. But we didn't do that, not because we didn't have the technology, but we didn't think in that way. We thought a little bit more holistically. And as you progress through technology, as we expand, it's like the individuality becomes stronger. Now I have my own phone, my own social media, my own uh, online persona, my own everything. And that my you're talking about gets stronger. And I think it creates more division. It creates more loneliness. So somehow it seems like since you've come back, You've connected with, um, with the wisdom of the ancestors, or, or you've you've began that journey, and somehow I think like, you know, maybe we need almost like a new spirituality because for many of us we're not going to be able to connect with that heritage. We don't even know in some cases what our heritage is, but we have this one Earth, and we we've got to you know, and together and like collaborating like you and I and, and, and people who are thinking in this way, we have to find, build a bridge mm-hmm. back to the, the family of the earth. And then the other thing I wanted to, to ask you was, if your experience showed you that we're eternal, your body died, but some, something continues. So if we're eternal, then why do we not know that? Why why do we instinctively have such a strong fear of dying? Yeah, that's a good question, and and I have a very simple answer to it. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was dead, I felt one, the sense of oneness with everything. Right? I I got this sense of separation when I got back in my body. When I was dead, I was one. So. We feel like we're disconnected from everything. So right now, for me to touch this computer or reach out, I could touch it, but it feels like it's not part of me. Right. It feels separate. So we get this big sense of separation the minute we're embodied. And I think that's what causes the fear. So would you say that that's an illusion, Jose? It's an illusion. When I touch material things, it like you said, it feels separate. Therefore, I want to acquire it. Because it's not me. It's something I could have. But if if people had the awareness that you were talking about from the NDE, there probably would be less greed, uh, less division. Because like you said, you knew you were the bird. You knew you were the color. You were the light. So then where does possession enter into it? It doesn't, right? You, it doesn't. Because right? they don't possess anything. Right. Only we do. A bird only takes what it needs. It builds its nest, but it leaves it there. It becomes something else. Mm, it doesn't claim point. ownership over it and, and things like that. But what's interesting about that is that uh, when you get this sense that everything is one, then you respect it. You mm. honor it more. It has more value. 
And uh, I think most older cultures are very, very similar. There is a Mother Earth. There is uh, a similar belief. You know, uh, the Earth doesn't belong to me. It belongs to my children. So what that's telling me, it belongs to everyone else that 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 comes after us, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's telling you preserve it. And uh, there's a lot of old teachings, and I think most most cultures have that same very almost basic teaching about you know living in in some kind of harmony. Then something happened that people decided to want to take others. They thought that things had value, like gold and 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 and, and resources. And you know, I I think if we created an environment where we all lived and shared, I don't need a hundred pairs of shoes. I can only wear one at a time. And if you don't have a pair, it's okay for me to give you one. If we had that mindset. Because I can't take that pair of shoes with me anywhere, wherever I go. When I'm ready to check out, right? That's going to stay here no matter what. So I think if we just have a, a more simple mindset like that, uh, life would be so much less stress-filled and anxiety-filled. You know, I don't need to excel to take your job. We need to work together to help each other. And uh, we have that mindset, you know, the mindset is compete. You climb up the ladder, and on that way, you're gonna kick this guy out the way, kick that woman out the way, and 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 it's almost like dog eat dog mindset. Yeah. And there's no concept of harmony. Right. So, so Jose, when you look when you look around the world, and you see the crises that we're facing collectively, and you see division and people are hopeless and kids are becoming mentally ill at unprecedented rates from your experience in the other dimension let's say can you look at that and have a different perspective is there is there a cause for hope despite all of that uncertainty i mean does it still feel to you like there's a creative force and it just like the illusion of separateness, maybe there's also some illusion of uncertainty or illusion of uh, of trouble in the world. But do you, do you see it as part of a larger divine plan? Well, I do. And I'll, I'll simply say this. Mm-hmm. When I was on the other side, I have a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. So I'll give an example of the experience of flying. So... We have a memory that's deeply embedded in us, not in my physical consciousness, but something that's deeper. And and I think that's why we strive to fly. So we create airplanes. We create alternate means to do it because physically we won't be able to. The same thing with communications. Like I, I, this communication we're having, I'm communicating with you and you're thousands of miles away. This is something that could easily be achieved over there. So I think it's memory. And I think that because that's memory, that we have the capacity to make this earth like that. There's no reason why we can't. Look, we're not going to be able to fly like I flew there. 
and maybe one day, who knows, with all the technology that 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 we're we're we're, we're able to kind of achieve. But uh, I know we're able to talk. We're able to see each other's with thousands of miles away. I mean, these were like dreams 50, 60 years ago of maybe would never happen. I remember Star Trek, right? They come, I see all these things eventually <laughs> within our grasp, right. right? But I think we have to first tackle an aspect of us that wants to, wants things, you know, and, and should focus on more important things. So as long as you have a roof over your head and you have shelter, you're good. You don't need 50 rooms. You don't need 10 bathrooms for three people in a house. And, and I find that's where there's an obsess of things. They, 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 it's an extreme. <clears throat> yeah. We could use that and help so many others. So, yeah, well said, Jose. I feel like enough people, there ha you have to hit a critical mass of people to hold this vision because it's kind of like a game theory where it's like a few people could see that. But as soon as you relax into that, let's say, you know, people who are greedy will go, great, more for me. I'll take the, the piece of the pie that you're not you're going to have. And, and, and so I think people actually get feared. They get conditioned into this way, whereas it might actually be natural for most of us to live the way you're describing. But the fear of being left out, the pressure to produce, the pressure, especially for men, uh, Jose, as you described before, the, those of us that, that feel a sense of uh, like masculine stereotype pushing us in a particular direction that you got to get enough. You got to get more. You got to uh, earn and win. It, it will be hard. I think I mean, that's the challenge is to get enough people to hold that vision. Because I think once there is a critical mass, people could exhale knowing that I'm not actually competing with all my relations or here to cooperate. But but it hasn't, I mean, I don't think it's been, we've achieved that, come close to achieving that. And I don't know if we will in, in my lifetime, but I believe in it. And I think you're right. And it's just a matter of how to continue to serve in that way and be of service in that way. And I do think that, you know, from your story, it sounds like that is an important part of why you're here. And so you've been, you, you've pivoted. I mean, you, you were talking about doing engineering work, electrical engineering work, and that, that scientific background. And now you're, you're in the arts and you're sharing to, to the best of your ability, the, the light, the color that really healed you, Jose, because when, when you're talking about flying in this world and, and, and doing it with technology or maybe without technology, to me, you know, the story of you being where you were at in, with your physical health condition, and the doctor saying, you're not going to get out of here alive. And then when you get out of there alive saying, you know, you're not going to live more than a year or two. And now it's been 20 years. Your body has been restored. And it's been, and it, maybe it's credit to consciousness, to spirit, to something non-physical. Um, but now you're, you're getting results bringing this color, this artwork 
as a healing modality and sharing that with others. So can, can you tell us a little bit more about what, what inner immersion is and ascension art that you're creating and how, and, and what your goal is for bringing it into the mental health arena? Sure. So <clears throat> really it's, it's what I saw when I crossed the colors mm-hmm. that I saw, uh, and the instruction that I was given. So I, I essentially came back with a blueprint now. Never painted. I still can't do even stick figures. I got a nine-year-old that paints like crazy, right? (laughs) And I'm like, but when I get in a zone and I get in a space and I begin to create these layers and, and they're very specific. So each image has 50 layers. Some have over 200. So that means I painted over it. And I do that on, 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 on with technology. I do that in a 3D space, right? So I paint, take a picture, and import into computer. Then I begin to layer it, layer it, layer it, layer it. And uh, that piece back there is the end result of that. So that might be about 200 layers. And that represents creation. In that blackness is everything that is essential to create everything that I know or need. So if I look at our universe, for example, and even if I take into account the Big Bang, it took 13.8 billion years for everything that we know to be where it is right now. And so many years for Earth to be built, right? They could say 5 billion years, whatever. But built to a point where it made it safe, capable to house us. And then it made us so we could survive here and live here. And I look at the universe simply as that. So that's the foundation of that creation. Then we start with the layers, and in and, and theory, it's, it, it's my beginning. Here's where I was when I was very young, and as I got older, and this happened to me, so I put a wall so that won't happen to me again. I'm afraid. I, I, I had a relationship, and it didn't work well. Now I'm afraid to commit. Boom. And we, we begin to alter our personality and our being and becoming different people. And uh, really what it represents is all the people I've been, but it also represents all your, your relatives and ancestors. And uh, ultimately it goes so far back that it becomes kind of co-mingled with everybody else. And it goes back to the original source, so where we all came from. And to me, that speaks about union with one, union with yourself and every everything that exists. So technically that painting is engineered to take you back to that creation, to that beginning moment of everything that we know and everything that 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 we've experienced and all those before us, right? That come before us because they live within me, you know. And so we move forward with our entire past with us, not only five years or ten years or just up to my mom and dad, but my grandparents and my grandparents and my, my, my great grandparents and my great, you know, and uh, we have a term that we say, uh, you know, our seven grandmothers, which means our entire tree, right? Family tree and, and everybody that existed in it. So we walk around with all that. We don't walk around with just my life. We walk around with all those thousands of lives that are directly connected to me. And then at one point they all kind of, uh, uh, get entangled with everything else. So not only with everybody else around us, but with Mother Earth, with everything that exists. And to me, that 
the imaging is really engineered to take you to that oneness, right? Where we become one with everything. But it's also a mirror of yourself. So I was instructed to paint on reflective surfaces. So that one's on metal. I paint on glass, metallic uh, paper, and then we put like a, a laminate on it. Uh, but the idea is to see a little bit of yourself in there, right? So now that's me. And then that gave birth to the, the inner immersion program and the immersive arts. So I started to use it and I figured out that if I light it in a certain way, the colors move. And sometimes it peels off the hour later and pulls out the layer behind it and it gets that sense of movement. And uh, I said, wow, it's getting closer to what I saw when I was dead. And uh, with that in mind, I started to think, okay, it's going to be a practice. Now, you're going to understand where I'm coming from here. I had this. This is how it's going to work. And the concept was a bridge. How do I bridge here and the other the other space? Then I took a shower the day before I was actually going to do the practice. And I had about six people that were going to participate. That was going to be the first time I ever did it. And this was in 2008. And that night, I get a download. And it was like, got to change everything. Got to change everything. So it became about... My deaf experience integrated with some of the culture that I learned, that I knew of. And incidentally, because I hadn't really learned that till I got here to Canada, I was still in Florida. So somehow I had an awareness of that. And so it told me when we go into this meditation, the first meditation, you use drumming. Why do we use drumming? It's your beat of your mother's heart. It's what infant when it's born could differentiate a heartbeat from another. Knows its mother's heartbeat. So I was like, wow, that's really intense. So drumming to take us back to our, be our beginning. A sweat, in essence, is the womb of your mother. It's the womb of the creation part of creator, the female aspect. And that's why it's hot and wet and dark. And... uh that's where we go to sweat, to have that experience of, of, of letting go of stuff and things like that. So while I didn't, hadn't done a sweat, this was fashioned in that same way. So it had all those aspects in it. Uh, but anyway, the practice is engineered to have you find yourself and we do that through art. So there's art components associated with it, not traditional art therapy. This is more of, I give you a certain amount of time to paint. I, paint for X amount, we go through meditation A, meditation B. I like to share a story because I think I, the idea is to connect with people and create trust. So I share a real story of my life. Well, this happened to me and this was really bad. Well, this happened to me and this was really good. And uh, the idea is to get them to become receptive to uh, opening up and sharing their own stories. Anyway, by the time we finish, it's a three-hour process, three and a half hours. Uh, people open up. And uh, uh, I was able to discover by the use of the colors that they, they, they pick, they select, and that they use, that I could predict with 70 to 80% accuracy a lot of what was going on in their life. And uh, a lot of times people say, well, you're kind of psychic. And I would say, no, I'm not psychic. You're telling me. And I truly believe that. So, uh, for example, if somebody takes 24 crayons, I know with 70 or 80% accuracy what five colors they're going to use. And 
that was the first thing that was like a pattern that I began to see. And I wondered why that was. So you got 24 colors. Why do most people pick the same colors? And then it became deeper than that. Then I began to realize if I paint with a color, it's telling me that something bad happened to me. If I paint with a different color, it means I'm hiding all these things. If I paint with another color, it means, man, I need a break. I need, I'm being overwhelmed by life. And I began to be, be able to look at the paintings or the sketches that the people did, the drawings, and be able to say to them, very, with, with pretty good certainty, what was going on in their life. Uh, and I did that with over 1,500 people, and I'll get them to validate what I'm saying. If they can validate what I'm saying, then this is a toolbox that they could use. And they don't need to wait three years for someone like myself to tell them, this is why I'm here. Ten minutes after you're in their office, they got a real good idea of where you are. And uh, the beauty of this is you take it home. And you continue to do the practice by yourself. And you could just either scan these and send them to, uh, you know, your, your mental professional or go back to see them every once in a while. It's not intended to be long term. It's intended to be something that cuts to the chase and it creates in, in the world of mental health what, what, what they, what they want. They want, uh, trust and they want breakthroughs. The breakthroughs happen between one or four sessions. After four sessions, you're already telling your story. You're telling them what going on uh so it, it's almost like a mirror of your life it's a photo mm -hmm. of you and then i also want to use it in a different vein and that is to help mitigate use of consumption of drugs so when you're in hospital you have surgery you're in pain will having the artwork available to you being there with you being able to look at it, being able to pick one painting or another, in essence, become your own curator. Will one image allow you to manage pain better than another? And if so, let's find out what about that image is. Is it the colors? Is it what? And and I'm actually speaking with two hospitals about potentially doing a program like that now. Uh, the idea is to stop addiction before it starts. When I left the hospital, I was three months in hospital. I was addicted to multiple medications took me two and a half years to win off. So from my personal experience, I know how easy it is to become addicted. And we're addicted to all kinds of stuff right now, social media, some people are addicted to television. I mean, we're addicted to food. Everybody has an addiction. Some are just more harmful than others. And uh, yeah, we're just trying to see if we could create a use for this that might be able to become a tool to help somewhat with, with some of these uh, painful addictions like drugs and, and, and things like that. And, and Jose, I mean, that's, that's really wonderful, meaningful work. And my back, I have a background in psychology and it can be discouraging to see people with all these traumas and, and addiction and, and so many of the things that we go through in life. It's just not easy to heal with the modalities that we have. I don't see people come for treatment 10, 12 more times for the same condition. And it just doesn't seem like they're making progress and it's disheartening. But when I think about your experience, Jose, with your father and the trauma that you endured growing up, it seems like 
it probably would have been really hard for that for you to heal, forgive, and liberate yourself from that part of your journey just through conventional therapy. It seems like you needed some something so holistic, so mind, body, soul. And obviously you got that in your near-death experience or in your experience in the on the other side because you got to make peace with your father. So it seems like maybe this inner immersion and the ascension art is sort of a reflection of that. It's an opportunity for people to at least connect with that energy of spirit and allow it to, you know, to do that kind of healing work on us. We we really, I think, need more of this kind of immersive, holistic, integrative, spiritual healing. When I've heard stories of other near-death experiences, people sometimes realize what they could never realize in life about their anger, their rage. And from me and you talking also, I get the sense, Jose, that like part of our collective struggle is that as a society, we're too masculine, we're too aggressive, we're too individualistic, we're too greedy. Now, that doesn't mean masculinity, I think, is is unhealthy or not spiritual, because masculinity also means like strength, wisdom, protection, power, love. And that's part of the earth and the, and the cosmos and all that. But but you had an experience with the divine feminine in your NDE. And even now it's like you, you, you're making a shift. And, and I've never heard the sweat lodge described as going back to the mother, going back to the womb in, in the way, in the beautiful way that you described it. So it seems like there's, there is collective wisdom that it encourages us to this creative, loving, feminine side. And I mean, even some of the, um, the Western major faiths or major religions are kind of patriarchal in the sense that, you know, there's a father and it, it may, it may, it may not be wrong. I'm not saying right or wrong or what to believe or not believe, but given where our traumas are individually and collectively, I do think this type of intervention is is worthwhile so thank you for coming back jose thank you for doing this work and you know being on this long long road for your own healing and, and long road to to serve because i know like you said it was a it was a painful path to recover from that experience and then to integrate what you learned and to resolve all of all that static in your mind was uh you know was quite the the triumph really so i i appreciate everything everything you're sharing here jose and is there a way that people can find you and connect with what you're creating and the inner immersion what what are the best ways to um for for listeners to follow up on on what you're doing yeah, they, they can find me on Facebook or Instagram. It's Jose Hernandez uh, Inner Immersion. Uh, I have a website, 
innerimmersion.org or innerimmersion.com and then I have immersivearts.com. And thank you for the opportunity. This was a beautiful interview. And I, I just want to share one more thing that I think. Sure, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, there are four elements that we speak of, right? Right. And I'm going to talk about an element that's very special, and that's water. And I'm going to talk about water because in our culture, water is the humble element. Why is water humble? Because water always seeks the bottom first. doesn't have to be on top of anything. It starts at the bottom, and it makes itself. It builds itself. And uh, I think if we were like water, what a beautiful world this could become. We all thought, let's be humble, let's be like water. And the more of us that get together, the bigger this pool gets. And before you know it, you have an ocean. And uh, I think that, imagine that, water, drop by drop, became an ocean. And where did it start at the lowest point? And look at the beauty and grace that it owns. We could be that. And uh, that's what I think that... uh, if I could leave you with a, with a thought, that'll be it. And the second one is make happy pools. Those are the only thing that you own. The only thing you take with you are those good men. Because I know the bad ones can't make their way through. And we're all going to have these bad patches and these bad moments in life and these struggles. Uh, but we're always going to move on. We'll always get beyond it. And even if it means something took, took us to the other side. You get past everything, but make good moments, make happy moments and be like water. Thank you, Jose. I love those parting thoughts. It's a perfect uh, way to close out this dialogue. I'm really grateful to you. It's an, It's been an honor to share space with you, to learn from you and to hear your story. And I'm happy to support uh, support what you're doing and, and spread the word on um, inner immersion and the artwork that you're creating and the healing that you're creating for the world. So thank you, Jose. I hope we can connect again and continue our dialogues and continue to collaborate. And for those of you who are listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can also watch this episode on YouTube and vice versa. So thank you, Jose, my friend, and I look forward to seeing you again in the future. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. I know we will meet again. Stay well. Stay safe.